You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 29th of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up on today's programme, with only hours to go until the truce between Israel and Hamas expires, we get the latest on conditions for Palestinians living in Gaza and the West Bank. Talks in Tokyo lead to Vietnam and Japan agreeing to strengthen their security and economic ties. We find out what it means for China's ambitions. Then we're off to Zurich, where Monocle's contributing editor, Jessica Bridger, reviews the newspapers. What do you have for us today, Jessica? Out of Austria, René Benko's Signa Group had a new filing this morning in the courts in Vienna. And we're going to switch over to Germany, where we're going to discuss infrastructure, consumer worries about pricing, and whether overhead power lines are the way to go. More from Jessica a bit later. And finally, we speak with architect Ken Shuttleworth at the World Architecture Festival in Singapore. That feeling that you have as a human being to actually create something that's actually for another human being. I don't believe that that will ever be replaced. Architects are here forever. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Vincent McAvinney. Well, on the sixth and final day of the truce between Israel and Hamas, it's expected there will be another swap of hostages taken during the 7th of October attack for Palestinian prisoners. In the seven weeks since the war broke out, Gaza's Hamas-run health ministry says more than 14,800 people have been killed in Israel's retaliatory strikes, including around 6,000 children. Francesca Albanese is the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights in the Palestinian Territories Occupied Since 1967. Francesca, thank you so much for joining us. Firstly, can you give us an update on the humanitarian situation in Gaza? Hi, thanks for having me. The humanitarian situation in Gaza is... uh continues to be catastrophic and there is no way it will improve in the coming days. Um, There have been uh, nearly or over 15,000 people killed, Uh, 6,000 of them are children. There are 3,000 people still under the rubble and 50% of the civilian infrastructure has been either destroyed or severely damaged, so it's no longer functional um, after uh, four or five weeks of continuum, continuous relentless bombing. And uh, entire residential neighborhoods have been leveled together with churches, mosques, schools hospitals. The fact that uh, uh, the major hospitals, uh, particularly Al-Shifa, has stopped functioning is uh, is part of the catastrophe that r- risks to um, amplify the, 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 humanitarian, the humanitarian problems in the coming days. It's because um, there are already uh, respiratory issues and other um, infections and forms of disease uh, that are traveling across the, the population. You know, there is 1.7 million people who have been forcibly displaced, uh, sleeping either 
in shelters or in the street with minimum hygiene possible, no food, no drinkable water for most of the people. This is, yeah, this is why catastrophe is a word that well describes what's going on right now. And in the six days of the truce, has there been much that NGOs and charities have been able to do to help alleviate some of that dire situation? Well, first of all, I would like to commend the humanitarian personnel on the ground and particularly particularly UNRWA, because UNRWA, uh, which is the largest UN organization on the ground, has done an incredible, incredible job in trying to, uh, as usual, as usual, because this is the sixth war that UNRWA, together with the Palestinians in Gaza, go through since 2008. And it has sheltered uh, in IDPs and it has tried to uh, provide all possible humanitarian aid, but at a certain point had to go to, uh, I mean, uh, had to, to, to cease because it was just uh, running out of out of fuel. And then it's still the the main actor trying to access uh, people in remote areas together with ICRC in the north. Um, And it has lost uh, 100, over 100 staff members, which is which is incredible. I mean, it's 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 horrible. Mm. And uh, and still Anwa is the main actor distributing distributing aid, but it also says that whatever has entered, uh, uh, which has increased actually during the during the siege, uh, sorry, during the ceasefire, but it's not sufficient. It's mm. not sufficient to meet all the needs of the population, but particularly because there are also over 30,000 people who are wounded, who need medical assistance, and there is nothing to uh, to help them. And just to say for listeners who aren't aware of the term, IDP means internally displaced person. Um, Francesca, can I just ask, with the fighting set to resume at the moment uh, within the next 24 hours, and particularly given the claims Israel is set to push towards the south of the Gaza Strip, where they had told Palestinians to move for safety, what are your fears about the coming days? No, I truly hope. I truly hope that uh, that the, oper- the military operations will not resume because it does look. It's already a catastrophe, as I said. I mean, sixteen thousand people in in less than fifty days. It's it's an horrendous figure. It's clear. Israel Israel claims to have killed one thousand around one thousand one thousand five hundred Hamas operatives. It means that ninety percent ninety percent of the victims are innocent, are civilians who have nothing to do with it. Isn't it enough to show that Israel is not in, in able is not able to respect the principles of distinction, proportionality, and precaution that are cardinal to in 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 at times of conflict? So there is no way, no way that the bombing can resume without amplifying, aggravating the the already dire situation. If we looked even further ahead, say, to the sort of end of this, uh, the combat operations that Israel is undertaking, say, um, with the damage that's been done to infrastructure, you mentioned the hospitals, but also, you know, so much of the infrastructure, the sort of water, uh, electricity, everything else. I mean, what would be needed for Palestinians to continue just being able to live in Gaza? Yeah. Look, I think it's based on what comes out 
from those who are on the ground. And I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of long-term humanitarian senior UN officials who have been in other conflict zones and 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 areas of of disasters. They say they have never seen this level of destruction. And uh, all of them seems to infer that it will be impossible to resume uh, life, uh, even if the hostilities ceased forever. It will take a while to rebuild Gaza. So um, in, in this respect, I want to say that, I mean, just connected to how you started your, your last question, I think that the long-term uh, goal has not been just uh, the eradication of Hamas from uh, Israel's hands, has been uh, inflicting um, a huge strike on the civilian population, which frankly, it's um, it's unacceptable, but this is the reality we we are facing now, and surely the, the Palestinians in Gaza are facing. And just turning to the West Bank, if we could, there's been an increase uh, in violence there too in recent weeks. Absolutely, which which proves uh, the, the, the the arguments that together with other human rights organizations and experts have always made that the violence against the Palestinians is, is, is in the occupied Palestinian territory is structural and has really little to do with Hamas because there is no Hamas military presence in the in the West Bank already before the 7th of October. The situation had been catastrophic because of, uh, nearly 300 Palestinians had been killed um, and around 30 Israelis. And, and now the situation has worsened as of the 7th of October because while the international community's attention is, is on Gaza, um, Israeli soldiers and armed settlers, which have also, I mean, have also been bolstered by by uh, Minister Israeli Minister Ben Gavir, who's uh, distributed weapons to really anyone who wanted to be a vigilante. Um, they've killed over 220 Palestinians in the context of extrajudicial executions, mostly, um, including 60 children. Uh, and this, this fears only speak volumes to the urge to have a protective presence in the occupied Palestinian territory. We cannot move forward. The Palestinians and the Israelis cannot afford moving forward without a buffer in between them uh, in order to secure safety and protection of both, although the primary victims are the Palestinians, clearly. Francesca, thank you. That was Francesca Albanese, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights in the Palestinian Territories Occupied Since 1967. Now, here's Monocle's Carlos Rebello with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Vincent. Russia is working on draft legislation that would force foreigners to sign a loyalty agreement, forbidding them from criticising official policy, discrediting Soviet military history or contravening traditional family values. Russian authorities have been toughening their stance on any dissent ahead of the presidential election next year. Turkey has told Sweden it expects to ratify its long-delayed accession to the NATO military alliance within weeks. Sweden and Finland asked to join NATO last year after Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Some in NATO had hoped the ratification would be completed by now, in time for an accession ceremony to take place on the sidelines of the Brussels meeting.
And the remaining four members of K-pop supergroup BTS will begin their military service in mid-December, joining the three who are already serving. The seven-member group is on temporary break while members carry out South Korea's mandatory military service. South Korea has one of the world's largest active armies to defend against North Korea. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Vincent. Thanks, Carlotta. To Asia now, where Japan and Vietnam have agreed to boost their security and economic ties in the face of China's growing influence in the region. I'm joined by Alessio Patalano, who's professor at King's College London and an expert on Asian defence. Alessio, thank you for joining us. Firstly, can you tell us about these talks between Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida and the Vietnamese President Vu Van Thong, which have been taking place in Tokyo? Um, so the first thing to say is that Thong's visit is the first since he took office in Vietnam, and um, uh, the first visit to, to, to Tokyo, to Japan. And, and it is an important visit because, uh, uh, of course, uh, as, you, as, 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 your, as our listeners know only too well, in Asia, the dates matters, commemoration, ceremonies, um, signposting events um, um, have a particular effect. And this year was the 50th anniversary um, of... Uh, Former diplomatic relations established between uh, uh, with with Vietnam and the Association of Southeast Asian Nations (ASEAN), um, and so in this respect, I think it was very important for Japan uh, to uh, 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 to highlight the significance. And so, uh, Thong visit to Tokyo really falls within this broader um, uh, uh, initiative uh, by Tokyo um, to further develop what has been already uh, quite a significant investment on the back of the free and open Indo-Pacific initiative that was started by the late uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. So this visit is both symbolically, politically um, and strategically very important. But it's not something that comes out of the blue. It's something that really is meant to celebrate, highlight and propel 50 years of links uh, between ASEAN countries and Japan, and in the specific case, Vietnam and Tokyo. Mm. And in terms of the ties, the economic ones first, I mean, what will that mean for Vietnam? Will we see, for instance, Japanese technology or car makers perhaps expanding their operations in the country? Um, so that's an excellent question. I think uh, so. The, the meeting had at heart um, the uh, objective of stepping up the, the, the security ties, the defense-related exchanges. But you raise a very important point insofar as capturing um, what has been a dynamics that has already sort of been taking place for about a decade now. And um, early stages of when tensions um, from uh, an economic point of view emerged in the mid-2010 between China, the PSC, and, 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 and Japan. Japan's and Japanese uh, uh, industry started to look elsewhere. And Vietnam became one of the first countries in which some measure of diversification of economic investment in Japan came about. Um, so Japan was a, a very important actor when it comes to the uh, sort of uh, 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 the, 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 the Vietnam's opportunity to look around and find for uh, find uh, new partners uh, to propel its economy. And we've seen this with trade data that certainly sort of highlight the extent to which this relationship has grown. So. What we've seen today being sort of uh, firmed up in the defense and security space certainly builds up upon um, this economic sort of 
connection, mm. which absolutely, as you pointed out, is a part of a broader strategy of diversification of Japan um, in its sort of regional dependency more than 10 years ago uh, from China, but also that opportunity for Vietnam to become one of the new upcoming sort of rising dynamic uh, engines, economic mm. engines of the region. Particularly when it comes to the new plants, for instance, for EVs and battery technology, it seems that Vietnam is really attracting investment for that. But if I can just turn slightly to the military aspects of this, you know, Japan is fairly new to scaling this up itself. It's effectively abandoning its uh, constitutional neutrality position. What military transfers and support are they actually capable of doing? So first of all, I think, let me, let me sort of clarify a point. The Japanese constitution has very little to do with defense engagement. And, and Japan has been very sort of um, uh, uh, very active um, in terms of promoting stability um, through capacity building in security terms in Southeast Asia for the better part of the last 50 years. Uh, now, uh, Vietnam has been one of the most interesting developments of the last decade. Um, and certainly the Japanese were uh, sort of uh, visiting ports like Kamra Bay, um, uh, uh, even before the United States did. Um, so in, in, and, and, and it's always been part of this broader conversation in which Japanese political leaders realized that their Vietnamese counterparts um, shared with them a sense of discomfort of remaining at the mercy of a very powerful neighbor. And so that conversation today landed the two countries in this strategic, this upgrade of the ties with a strategic relationship. And also the beginning of a conversation of this new initiative uh, that is called the Official Security Assistance uh, Program, that if you want, it's a point of convergence between the old um, aid for development funds and this kind of like more securitized version of that set of initiatives in which Japan is looking at Southeast Asian countries um, to, to be the primary beneficiaries of defense technology transfer, whether in capacity building terms um, uh, in order to uh, um, increase their capacity uh, to maintain stability, security and order, particularly in the maritime uh, sways of the Indo-Pacific and in especially their EZs and territorial waters. And just finally, to sort of uh, broaden this out, obviously, the importance of this is to counter China's influence. I couldn't help notice, you know, earlier in the autumn, President Joe Biden, when he was at the ASEAN uh, summit and then uh, went to the G20, uh, he also paid a visit specifically to Vietnam. How much is this coordinated between Western nations, America, Japan, to bring Asian nations, which are all seemingly having trouble in various ways with China's influence, whether it be in the South China Sea, or in terms of disinformation mm. spreading on TikTok. How coordinated a strategy is this? Um, Listen, this is an excellent question. It's, it's probably one of the most important questions that, that we should be debating at the moment because it seems from, from the surface of it um, that there is some degree of coordination. And, and, and frankly, one would be surprised if there weren't um, a degree of coordination because this is a subject that has been part of, um, if you want, a sharing in a bilateral and minilateral context um, in between and among uh, the United States and its closest partners and allies um, in, in East Asia as well as in Europe. So, so in that sense, um, I think we have to be absolutely clear about the fact that 
the, the, the signals, the signs of all of this speak to a degree of coordination. Having said so, there is also a matter, another point that really relates to another aspect of what you mentioned earlier, um, and that is there are certain countries like the Philippines, like Vietnam, who at the moment are um, at, the at the receiving end of sort of the, the, sharp, end, the sharp end of the stick of, of Chinese uh, coercive activities and initiatives, particularly in the South China Sea, and this in turn creates an opportunity for further dialogue, um, linking the economic dimension to the broader defense and security sphere. So the fact that you see Vietnam at the moment being at the center of this conversation is certainly a matter of, 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 of that reflects coordination, but also a matter of the geopolitics and the direction of travel of the strategic uh, geopolitical dimension of the region in which Vietnam is likely to remain a very pivotal actor. Alessio Patalano, thank you very much. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. You're back with The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. It's time now to head to Switzerland for a review of today's newspapers from the region. I'm joined now from our Zurich studio by Monocle's contributing editor, Jessica Bridger. Good afternoon, Jessica. And what's caught your attention? Good afternoon. So today out of Austria, uh, we have news from Rene Banco's Signa Group. It was just announced this morning that they have declared insolvency and are filing for self-restructuring in Vienna. Now, they are they hold Signa Prime, which is the largest private real estate company in Europe with over 20 billion dollars in real estate and investments. Wow, that is a lot. And, and where is that spread geographically? So that's really spread. It's concentrated in Europe, but it's it also includes the Chrysler building in New York. Wow. Um, and turning to uh, democracy now in Austria and the attitudes towards it. So the attitude in 2023, this is some good news, is that 39% of the Austrian public has a positive attitude toward democracy, and that's up from 34% in 22. And this is according to the Soror Research Institute. Now, that's good news because Europe-wide, perhaps that's a beginning of a pattern. And we have European parliamentary elections, and a number of European countries will hold national elections in the coming year. Yeah, I mean, it is going to be an absolute election fest next year around the world. So it is good that democracy is still uh, holding its ground in some uh, countries. Uh, and turning to Switzerland, they have a worker shortage going on. What kind of workers? Yeah, so actually that was for many years going on with skilled workers. So that's IT, that's people working in the medical professions. But now that includes workers of all kinds, window cleaners, painters, construction workers. Now, unemployment rate here is 2%. That's very low. And there are more vacancies than applicants in all sectors. And in terms of Switzerland's policies towards bringing in workers from abroad, it's obviously not in the European Union. So what kind of schemes does it have to get uh, workers in from neighbours or from further afield? So it has a number of schemes. I mean, there is freedom of movement between Switzerland and Europe to a certain extent. It's, it's all European residents do have the right to work according to a contract or according to established um, own company structures. And there are a lot of EU citizens that are attracted to the high wages here in Switzerland. So that has knock-on effects in the EU when skilled laborers leave the EU for Switzerland. And then the EU, in turn, has its own skills shortages. 
And in terms of the more sort of low paying work, where does it tend to attract people for that? Does it go further afield? Um, it is a little bit more limited in terms of that. So so-called third country nationals, things are much tighter, but it can also recruit from within the European Union for laborers. For example, uh, there's a lot of skilled labor that comes in in the construction industry from, for example, Portugal, where there are certain skills in ironwork and stonework that are at a standard that's acceptable in Switzerland. And Switzerland has one of the highest building standards in the world. And just turning to Germany now, a story we've been covering lots uh, is this recent court decision when it comes to Germany's budget. And it's having all kinds of effects, but one of them is on the green energy transition. Yes, that's the problem with our current economic and political environment is that many investments that need to happen within green transition are not happening or are threatened. And one of the responses today that was announced was that the company Funstisch Hertz, which is one of Germany's largest trans power transmission system operators, has issued an internal paper calling for the creation of uh, overhead power lines to help with the new grids that need to come online to support all the decentralized energy generation that we can associate with the green transition. And that measure would have cost savings, which would allow those grids to be established and not cost taxpayers extra amounts in taxes or, as consumers, make energy prices rise, but still try to forward the green transition that Germany is so strongly supportive of. Jessica Bridger in our Zurich studio, thank you very much. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. And finally, we're off to Singapore, where the World Architecture Festival, the largest global awards event for architects, has concluded its first day. The event is back at Singapore's iconic Marina Bay Sands after nearly a decade in Europe and online during the pandemic. WAF attracts leading international architects, including British designer Ken Shuttleworth. His studio, Make Architects, is behind Sydney's new Capella Hotel, housed inside a former government building and the London headquarters of the Swiss bank UBS. Ken is also the brains behind the Architecture Drawing Prize, which showcases the best hand-drawn digital and hybrid architectural images. Monocle's Lillian Fawcett sat down with Ken earlier and asked him why he co-founded the prize in 2017. I mean, for me, architectural drawing is the sort of essence of what we do. You know, everything's communicated through drawing. Pictures on the wall, drawings of any description, you have to use those to communicate. And I, I was sort of slightly concerned that with computer age, you know, some of the hand drawing techniques, some of the uh, ways we used to work is getting lost. And we wanted to actually celebrate hand drawing, but also to celebrate the new digital age as well. So there's, there's actually three categories, which actually span from hand drawing right through to digital with a hybrid in between. And that's to encourage people to continue to draw. I mean, for me, drawing is so important. You know, it's the way you think. It's not just a matter of communicating. It's the way I think and communicate, you know, through sketching. And I think if that gets lost and just goes straight into computers, I think you're losing a way of understanding architecture, a way of actually designing buildings. Architectural drawing is, of course, a professional tool. And like you say, it helps designers communicate about their ideas. But actually, some of the winners from this year are really works of art. I mean, I think there's a, there's a, you know, there's a sort of crossover between art and architecture in this prize. You know, lots of the submissions tend to be very artistic in their submission rather than sort of how to build a building. And I think that's the 
the interesting thing about the way the prize is developing. I mean, they are works of art. You would have them on your wall at home. They are absolutely fantastic drawings, whether they're hand-drawn or whether they're digital. So yeah, I think there's that crossover into art, which is really exciting. Have you noticed a rise in kind of different technologies to produce these drawings? I mean, there's more and more movement towards digital. Um, there's now new, you know, AI has introduced new digital platforms as well, which at the moment we're not, we're not part of the prize. But obviously there's a, a movement towards, you know, just word using language to create drawings, which is, you know, very different to drawing on a drawing board with your hand, with a pencil. So I think that transition, we need to think about that in the future. But yeah, that's a big change. I think AI coming in in the last 12 months, you know, with ChatGTP and Midjourney and, you know, Stable Diffusion, all those are new elements which we need to take into account with the drawing price. Is AI something that you see as a challenge to designers or is it an opportunity? For me, AI is a tool. So it's just the same as a tool like a pencil is. It's just another tool. It enables you to do things much quicker, enables you to um, do things you probably would, you know, that are more tedious, you know, and much, much, much faster. It's just a tool. It's just, you know, for inspiration. You wouldn't, you wouldn't expect mid-journey to design a building for you. You just won't do it. You know, you are basically, that's not what we're about. We're about designing and then using things like that to give us inspiration or to make a few shortcuts on, on the way we actually get to a final image. And in your own practice, you don't think there'll be an appetite in the, few, in the next few years then to kind of cut out the architect completely and just go straight to AI? Do people still want that human interaction when they're creating a building? I mean, I don't think I'll ever be where you say we don't need an architect. You know, you're always going to need an architect. Somebody who's going to think through the brief and the spaces. You're not going to be able to do that without um, human interaction. You, know, you can't do that just by typing something into a computer getting a result it just won't produce the sort of quality of spaces that you that actually work for people at the end of the day this is about designing buildings for people it's not about designing objects it's about designing for people and to do that with a machine is very difficult you need that that feeling that um, you have as a human being to actually create something that's actually for another human being i don't believe that, that will ever be replaced architects are here forever maybe i'm afraid but i think they will be here forever <laughs> Let's talk now a bit about the kind of biggest priorities and challenges for you as a designer at the moment. You have worked on some quite iconic office buildings, especially in London, like things like the Gherkin that people might recognise. And maybe people are sick and tired of hearing about the pandemic, but I think it is still affecting our kind of working habits. Are you doing much work on business spaces at the moment? And is there kind of demand for office design? Yes, I mean, I think office design is changing fundamentally. I mean, since the pandemic, there's been a much more accelerated move towards allowing open space, having more greenery, having more places where you connect with people. I think the office for me is about belonging. Um, so when you go to your building, you feel part of a, a whole network of people. And I think that's been an interesting issue at the moment where not everybody's going back to the office five days a week. Um, and our studio is back five days a week, which is fantastic in London and Hong Kong and Sydney. But we find that a lot of offices, especially you go towards America, I mean, people are just not back. As you go further east towards Asia, everybody's back. And I think it's that sense that you've got to create a building which people actually you know, really want to go to rather than stay at home. So that's, that's the way we're moving. We're just in a building in London you know, with lots and lots of terraces. You know, every floor pretty much has got a terrace. And that's been a, you know, a godsend for people coming to, to view the building. This is what they want, more outdoor space. 
Ken Shuttleworth speaking to Monocle's Lillian Fawcett at the World Architecture Festival in Singapore. You can hear more of their conversation on an upcoming episode of Monocle on Design. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Carlotta Ravello, our researcher was Harrison Warlock, and our studio manager was Callum McLean. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Goodbye, and thank you for listening. <laughs>